Uh, we're in the midst of a series, a series that's entitled Faith That Moves You Forward through the book of Nehemiah. We're taking it chapter by chapter, and this morning we're in the second chapter. Uh, and I know it's going to take just a minute, but I want to read into your hearing the entire second chapter of Nehemiah. So I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's Word. You can follow along with your, in your copy of God's Word, and if you don't have it, it will be on the screen. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 2 says, During the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I, that's Nehemiah, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? There's nothing but sadness of heart. And I was overwhelmed with fear. And I replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. Let's actually just pause there for a moment. This, moment, I, this morning, I want us to consider an idea. I want to tag this sermon, faith in process. Faith in process. Let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> God, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. Because, God, the people need to hear from you far more than they need to hear from me. I need to hear from you far more than I need to hear from my own voice. So give us grace to consider what it looks like to have a faith in process. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A faith in process. So on April 5th, 1988, uh, outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, a, a tragedy occurred. April 5th, 1988. Ivan McGuire tragically lost his life in a skydiving accident. See, McGuire was an experienced skydiver, uh, was a trainer, had done so many jumps. <clears throat> and on this particular day, he was tasked with filming students in a tandem jump when they're, with their instructor. So you've probably seen it before. you got this instructor, the student kind of strapped to him as they're getting their reps in before they can jump by themselves. And his job wasn't to be strapped to a student, but it was to be the guy who filmed them as they jumped out of the plane. He had already completed two jumps that day, so they were on their third jump. And so McGuire boarded the plane for the third time to film this student. And everything initially went according to plan. Everyone got on the plane. The plane reached its proper altitude. They found the location where they were going to jump. And McGuire stepped to the door. So being the individual who was filming, he would jump out first. And immediately after him would come the student and the instructor. And he'd film them. He'd, he'd film uh, the free fall. He'd film them, film them pulling their parachute. And then after they had pulled their chute, he would then pull his own. So again, everything's going to plan. He steps out. Jumps out of the plane, followed immediately by the instructor and the student. He's filming everything he needs to film. The student and the instructor, they exited well. The free fall went great. The parachute was successfully deployed. And so McGuire had the film that he needed. And so still in a free fall himself, it was time for him to pull his own chute. However, it was at that moment that McGuire knew that something was terribly wrong. And so when he went to pull the ripcord, it wasn't there. And so on the old VHS video, it doesn't show the whole thing, and you don't need to watch it because it's just an illustration. 
That's true, but you can see him frantically pulling for things on his chest. But there was one problem that led to this catastrophe. On this fateful jump, McGuire had forgotten to put on his parachute. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to how this happened, but the most likely understanding is that McGuire had confused the feeling of the harness for the camera as the parachute. And the problem comes is it sat on him exactly like the parachute would sit on him. And so for somebody looking at him head on, it would look like he had a parachute strapped to him, but it was just the rigging for the camera. Now, as I was reading this article about this 1988 tragedy, there was an interesting statement in one of the news articles. I read it a few years ago, and see, a good pastor always saves sermon illustrations, so I've had this one in the bank for a minute. <clears throat> but there was an interesting statement in one of the news articles from during that time when they covered the story, and one of the journalists said this, McGuire put his faith in a parachute that he hadn't gone through the process to use. And that statement started preaching to me. Because you see, the faith in the parachute was justified, but because he hadn't gone through the process, the faith did him no good. And I, as I was thinking about that article, it got me thinking, it might be a bit of a stretch, but I don't think so. I wonder if that's not the case for many Christians as well. I wonder if some of us have a genuine faith in a God who is able, a saving faith, a real faith, but that faith isn't moving us forward because we aren't actually going through the process of faith. See, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith. Our faith is a moving faith. It is a walking faith. It is a faith in process. And so the question becomes... What does that look like? What does it look like to have a faith in process? And in Nehemiah 2, we see a faith in process. He is an example to us of, of what it looks like to not just place faith in the right thing, but to then walk it out. What it's grounded in, what it clings to. So this morning, if you'll allow me, I want to I work through Nehemiah 2 and offer up to you four marks of a faith in process. Here's the first. A faith in process prays. Look with me again at verses 1 through 4. It says, During the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was set before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was overwhelmed with fear, and I replied to my king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king asked me, what is your request? Here it is. So I prayed to the God of heavens. So we left off last week, having just begun our study through the book of Nehemiah and Nehemiah 1, with Nehemiah receiving news about the state of Jerusalem, specifically that the walls of the city are still destroyed. Yes, the temple has been rebuilt, but the city as a whole is in shambles. And Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's in Susa, the city, of, uh, the, the city where the, the Persian palace resides, where the king resides. And the reason he's there is because of his occupation. We learned at the end of chapter 1 that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Now, this job did require Nehemiah to taste the king's drinks and food to make sure it wasn't poison. But as we started to talk about last week, this job brought with it incredible responsibility. You see, if you're going to be the person tasked with keeping the king alive, you've got to be a trustworthy person. 
And, and so King Artaxerxes most likely trusted Nehemiah probably more than he trusted most men, which meant Nehemiah was always around. So think about this. Nehemiah's in the background as conversations about governance is happening. He's in the background as King Artaxerxes is arguing with his officials, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to stop this uprising, how they're going to conquer this nation. And so he's always there. But as a cupbearer, he had a direct line of access and the ear of the king, but he also had a say in who got access to the king. So Nehemiah is in a, a position, or in a position where, where there's benefits for him and there can be benefits for the people of God. It's a very privileged position. And chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer during the month of Chislev. And so it's during the month of Chislev that his, brothers tra- his brother and, and his companions travel from Jerusalem. They come to Susa, they meet with Nehemiah, and Nehemiah asks them about the state of Jerusalem. And what Nehemiah hears crushes him. And so chapter 1 told us that when Nehemiah found out the state of the city, he wept, he fasted, and he prayed for days upon days upon days. He is pleading with God to do a work. But it's interesting because in verse 11 of chapter 1, we learn that Nehemiah expects or at least understands that it will likely be him that God will use to remedy this situation. Because Nehemiah prays in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. And at the time, it says, I was the cupbearer's king. So when it says compassion in the presence of this man, that could be translated in, in the presence of the king. So it's as if Nehemiah knows that in his unique position, God is going to somehow use him to be the catalyst by which Jerusalem is rebuilt. But here's where it gets interesting to me. We're going somewhere. Track with me. According to Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah begins praying that prayer in the month of Chislev. But as we start chapter 2, we read during the month of Nisan. So watch this. It's four months later that the stage is set for Nehemiah to be used by God. And every indication that we have from Nehemiah 1 is that Nehemiah continued to pray day after day after day after day until he knew that God was ready to use him. And oh, church, if that is not a lesson for us. Because you see, sometimes, track with me, sometimes your faith is moving forward even if nothing around you is changing Even if you are pleading with God to change things and nothing is happening, your faith very well may be moving forward simply because you have not stopped praying. Notice how at the end of chapter 1, during his prayer, Nehemiah was praying, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of the king. All indications point to the truth that that did not immediately happen. And so I can picture Nehemiah, can you, waking up the next day. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of the king. Nothing happens. Nehemiah wakes up the next day. Lord, today, give, give compassion so that I may, I may serve well in the presence of the king. And the next day, Lord, maybe it's today. Like, give me grace to serve well in your presence. And day after day, it doesn't happen. But maybe for Nehemiah, the success of the day isn't that he was used by God in that moment, but that he never stopped praying. 
And he prayed the same thing over and over and over, believing that God was able. It was ironic that we had a South African today share about Justin Gibney, because I'm going to quote from another South African theologian, Andrew Murray. Don't know if it's wise to put you on the same plane as Andrew Murray, but we'll see. Listen to what Andrew Murray says. He says, don't let delay shake your faith. For it is faith that will provide the answer in time. Each believing prayer is a step nearer to the final victory. Listen to this. He says, it ripens the fruit, conquers the hindrances in the unseen world, and hastens the end. Child of God, give the Father time. He is long-suffering over you. He wants your blessing to be rich, full, and sure. Give him time, but continue praying day and night. Dr. T.J. Betts adds to this idea when he writes, even when believers pray about the right things with the right motives, God still sometimes delays in answering so that our perseverance in prayer may become the very lesson itself. I'll be honest with you, church. Nehemiah is bringing it out of me. I said it last week, right? Confession times, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. There have been times in my Christian walk where I've struggled with that lesson of perseverance. Like, no, this isn't just like speaker embellishment. There are times when I have been ready to write off God. And I'm serious. Like, I want nothing more to do with you. I have been so angry with God. Why? Because he didn't answer my prayer when I wanted it answered. I knew it was the right prayer. I knew it was coming from right motives, and God says, not yet, and I've gotten so frustrated him, and I just praise God for his keeping power, because I think if it was left to me, I would have walked. But then there have also been seasons in my life when I have persisted in prayer, where the long nights, the hard days, persisted through them, and then God answered the prayer, and here's what's fascinating as I look back, for real, I can't even remember some of the prayers that God answered. But my soul has never forgotten the lessons of faith when it comes to perseverance. Day after day, Nehemiah prays until it is time for him to be used by God. And here's the thing. It's not that Nehemiah hasn't been in the presence of the king for four months. It's just for whatever reason, Nehemiah knew, and we don't have the answers of how he knew. He knew that this wasn't the moment when God was ready to use him. But here in chapter 2, it happens. So let's keep reading. It says, during the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king, Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine, gave it to the king. I'd never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness in your heart. I was overwhelmed with fear. So let's pause here because there's significance in him walking into the presence of the king with a sad face. Because it was a very dangerous thing to walk in the presence of a Persian king with sadness. Here's the reason why. Persian kingdom at that time, right, from, from Xerxes to Darius to Cyrus, those kings were built basically on assassinations and deception. And so to walk in the presence of a king sad or discouraged or angry gave the king the mindset of he's plotting something against me because he's not happy. I should probably just get rid of him. And you got to understand King Artaxerxes, he has just gotten done at this time. The months are significant. He's just finished a rebellion in Egypt that cost him an extremely large amount of troops. 
He has actually just received word that the people of God are are rebelling in Jerusalem and so has actually halted all building projects because he's convinced that the people of God want to rebuild their city just to rebel. So Nehemiah going in the presence of the king with a sad face, he is putting his life in jeopardy. He's putting his life in jeopardy. And so rightly so, it says in verse 2, I was overwhelmed with fear. Now, I want you to see this. The presence of fear for Nehemiah is not the defining mark of his faith. What you do when fear is present reveals your faith. So what does Nehemiah do? Look at verse 3. It says, I I reply to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah steps out on faith and begins to plead the case for Jerusalem knowing that this very petition could cost him his life. Now move on to verse 4. It says, then the king answered me, what is your request? Now for Nehemiah, it's got to be good news. Right? The guillotine didn't come down. The king's actually going to hear him. And so if I'm Nehemiah, I'm like, the moment has come, right? Let me tell him everything I want him to do, but no. So I prayed to the God of heavens, of the heavens. So once again, Nehemiah prays, standing in the presence of the king, stepping out in faith, trusting that his life is not going to end right there, but perhaps this is the moment that he has been praying for, and what does he do? He prays again. But brothers and sisters, there's weight to this moment and his response of prayer. Like, I kind of want you to try to feel it with me. Like, maybe you do. Because in a very real sense, I know what Nehemiah is probably feeling in this moment. I know why he defaults to prayer. I mean, try to place yourself there. Nehemiah is in the throne room of the Persian king. He's not Persian. He's an Israelite. And he's scared because he has watched as the cupbearer what happens to people when they challenge the king. There's some historical reports that note that cupbearers were often always present at the execution and the punishment of criminals. Like he's seen the stuff that Artaxerxes has done. Like he's killed family members over rebellion. So he's in the presence of the king. It's likely that there are other Persian members of the king's court there. It's possible, it's possible, it's just speculation, that in this moment, Nehemiah is the only Israelite in the room. And I don't know if you can relate to Nehemiah in this moment, but I can feel what he feels. Like he is all alone as he stands there. And no, 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 I'm not talking about like loneliness Because you're literally by yourself. I'm talking about like alone, that feeling you have where you can be in a packed room like this and feel like no one sees you. Like you are alone. A loneliness that keeps you up at night. Like the psalmist says where your tears are your food day and night. A loneliness that has you believing that the sun will never shine and the valley will never end. And maybe that's just me. So I preached to myself this morning. This simple response of prayer is a declaration of faith from Nehemiah that though I am afraid, I am never alone. Nobody else might be on my side, but this simple, beautiful act of praying again is Nehemiah declaring that God is always by my side. When I feel alone, I'm never alone. When the darkness is all around me, the God who holds the sun and the stars is at my side. A faith that is moving forward is not primarily seen in the absence of dark moments. A faith that is moving forward is a faith that knows where to run when those moments come. 
And I don't know about you, but like that's the kind of faith I want. Because Scripture tells us that there is power when God's people pray. I want that faith, a faith that cries out in prayer, a faith that clings to God in prayer, a faith that believes that prayer changes things. We know it's true. It's riddled throughout Scripture. Noah was a praying man. And it got him a ride on a cruise ship that saved his life. Abraham was a praying man, and his wife's womb of barrenness was changed into a blessing for the nations. Job was a praying man, and in a season of great tragedy, he came to believe that God was good even when the circumstances weren't. Moses was a praying man, and time would fail us this morning to tell of all the ways in Moses' life where God made a way where there was no way. Naomi was a praying woman. And messed around and found a kinsman redeemer for herself and her daughter-in-law. David was a praying man. And as he watched as God slayed the giants, united a kingdom, and took a shepherd boy and made him a king. All I'm trying to say is that our prayers change things. And it doesn't have to change our circumstances. They'll change us. And a faith in process is a faith that always prays. But that's not all. Notice this. A faith in process plans. Let's pick up reading in verse 4, but I want you to pay careful attention when we get to verses 6 through 8. It says, Then the king said to me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. Now here it is, verse 6. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him, watch this, a definite time. And it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. And the king granted my request for the gracious hand of God was on me. Now, this is interesting. This is fascinating. It's one of those details you might just skip over, but I try to make a point out of it. Here it is. When the king asks Nehemiah how long it will take, Nehemiah doesn't give an approximation. He doesn't speculate. He doesn't say, well, the last time that other nation had to rebuild their city, it was roughly six months. They had more builders, so let's go with a year. No, he gives them a definite time. But then Nehemiah asked the kings for the specific things he knows he needs. He knows where he's traveling. So he needs letters of safe passage to all the governors of the lands that he's got to travel through. He asked for a letter for timber to rebuild the gates, the fortress, the city wall, and a home where he can live. It's almost as if Nehemiah has thought about this before. See, here's the thing I want you to see. Nehemiah was depending on the Lord. And catch this. His dependence was so great that it led him to plan for the fulfillment of the promise, even though he had no idea how the promise would be fulfilled. Help me, God. Here we go. Think back to last week, okay? Nehemiah recognized the trouble that they were in because he knew the promise of God. He knew Deuteronomy. God promised a land for his people to dwell in covenant fellowship with him. He knew the promise, and he knew there was trouble because they didn't have the promise. 
And Nehemiah had such a deep faith in God and God's faithfulness that he is planning for the promise even though he doesn't have the promise because he knows the God who made the promise. See, that's faith. I've shared this quote from Tony Evans before. I'll share it again. Faith is acting like something is so even when it's not so in order that it might be so. Here it is, simply because God said so. And I want to be clear Nia is not making up a promise and then acting like God has to fulfill that promise. Nehemiah is believing if God said it, then he will do it. He's believing that God has never failed to come through. So why would he start right now? Think about it with me. How can Nehemiah give a definitive time if he wasn't planning for the promised land? Even though he wasn't in the promised land. How does he know what letters that need to be written, what lumber he needs if he's not planning for the promised land, even though he doesn't have the promise? So even before going to the king while waiting in faith, Nehemiah was planning on God coming through because God had promised. But watch this. There's more. Look at verses 11 through 16. Because not only does he plan before he gets there, he plans again when he does get there. After I arrived in Jerusalem, this is verse 11, and had been there three days, I got up at night, took a few men with me, didn't tell anyone what God laid on my heart to do in Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's wall and the dung gate. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. But farther down, it became too, too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at, at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not t- yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, or the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So after arrival, Nehemiah inspects all the areas he needs to rebuild. He's examining, taking inventory of what is needed. He's trying to plan how best to accomplish what God has called him to accomplish. And again, his planning does not in any way diminish his his faith. It's because of his faith that he plans. Now, here's why this is significant. Nehemiah models for us a deep faith in God, a faith that depends on the Lord through prayer, cries out to him in prayer, finds strength through prayer. But this is not a passive faith. Nehemiah isn't praying and doing nothing else. Here's another way of saying it, right? Often we can get tempted into believing that faith requires this let go and let God mindset. I'm just going to tell you, that ain't a Bible verse. This idea that true faith and waiting on the Lord means that we don't do anything else but pray. So let me try to apply this to you in two ways. Here's the first. First, if God promised it, we need to have faith that God will accomplish it and then plan as if we will experience it. And we need to have a patience that flows out of an understanding, like we mentioned last week, that just because God promised it, it doesn't mean he will do it right when I want him to do it. But nevertheless, we pray in faith, and we plan in faith, and we wait in faith for God to do what God has promised to do. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Some of us just need to hold God to his word. Like, he's not going to be mad at you for that. He knows what he has promised you. Now, I'm not talking about the things you want. I'm talking about the things that he has promised you. Hold him to his word. That's what I love about Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. Nehemiah doesn't make up words. He just prays God's word back to God. God's good with that. God hasn't forgotten. 
We got to hold God to his promises because God will always come through. Again, it may not be how you want. It may not be when you want, but it will always be what's best. But here's another way I want to try to apply it. What about, what about those prayers we pray that are good things, but not necessarily promises? Like in some sense, the promises are the easy ones, right? Like we believe God's going to do what he promised to do, but what about when we're praying for good things, but they're not necessarily promises? Well, again, we can look at Nehemiah. What Nehemiah models is a faith in God that depends on God to act and then plans like he will act. Here's the reality. I'm just going to say it. Just let it sit with you for a minute. There are some prayers that God may be ready to answer for you right now. You're just not ready to receive them. Maybe God is ready to give you that career opportunity you're praying for, but you aren't ready for the responsibility because you haven't planned. Maybe God is ready to save that family member that you've been praying for for decades, but you aren't ready to disciple them because you haven't planned. Maybe God is ready to heal you of that sickness that's kept you from getting back out in the world, but you aren't ready to be back out in the world. Here's what I'm trying to say is that in faith, we should pray big prayers. And while we wait, we have to be planning how we are going to honor God when he answers. Now, pause, not a health, wealth, and prosperity preacher, so I got to be careful here. Because what I am not trying to do is give you a formula to get God to give you those good things that you want. Go back to what I said a moment ago. I was very careful with my words. What Nehemiah models is a faith in God that depends on God to act and then plans like he will act. I didn't say he will act the way you want. I just said plan like he will act. Because what I'm not saying is that if you have enough faith and plan well enough that God is going to give you whatever you want, he is not a cosmic genie in the sky that owes you anything. But what I am saying is that God has promised that he will always answer you. And just like you plan how you're going to honor God if he says yes, you have to plan how you're, honor, you're going to honor God if he says no. And in faith, believe that if he says no to the good thing that you're asking for, it's because he sees something you don't see and he knows better than you. Hey, let's be honest, that's hard. It's hard. I'm not praying for bad things. I know the things I'm praying for are good things. Or I wouldn't be praying for them. And it is hard sometimes when I can see the good thing but I can't see the better thing to trust God when he says no to the good thing. But this is where faith comes into play, does it not? Has God ever held a good thing from us? No. Will God ever withhold a, the best thing from us? No. I know that because he gave us Jesus. We're going to come back to that one. I want you to make no mistake, though, a person that is walking by faith, a faith in process, it will be a faith that plans. Reminded, Proverbs 16, we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. The implication there is that we are planning, and it is through our planning that God will guide us, whether our planning is right or wrong, but he will guide us, but we make our plans. Here's the third mark I want you to see. A faith in process perseveres. Go back with me to verses 9 and 10. I know we skipped over them, but I'm going to come back to them. Or I was planning on coming back to them. So as Nehemiah is traveling to Jerusalem, this, these two verses record this detail for us. They're just kind of tossed in here, but they're going to be major players in the game. It says when, just look at verse 10. It says, when, when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. 
We will see those two names throughout the entirety of the book. These two individuals leading a charge of opposition against Nehemiah and the people of God. A charge that will eventually lead to major violence in the city. But what I want you to see now, and we'll get to that in the weeks to come, is that from start to finish, from the start to the finish of Nehemiah's assignment, he faced fierce opposition. Even here at the beginning, notice how the opposition, though, it didn't stop Nehemiah from moving forward. And I need for us to grasp this reality this morning. Touched on a few minutes ago, but it bears specific attention. Faith, a faith in process, a faith that is growing, that is moving forward, does not guarantee that there will not be real opposition in this world. The blessing of God has never been the absence of opposition in this life. In fact, it will often be the realization of the blessing in your life that will lead to opposition. And there is a temptation for many of us as we are progressing in our faith. Let's just acknowledge that there's a real temptation for us to become paralyzed the moment opposition and hardship comes. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have been convinced God has been leading you this way. You're walking in faith. It is going well. You're, you're, you're vibing with God. You're talking with God. You're walking with God. And opposition comes and you are done. Like you shut down because it got hard. And what we are tempted to do is we're tempted to think, well, where did I go wrong? What do I need to do in order to remove this opposition? But I just need us for a moment to sit in the reality that faith has never guaranteed ease. I know this is going to be new for any of you who have been around for any amount of time, but we need this reminder. I need this reminder. Jesus was never shy about declaring to us that our faith will lead to opposition. I mean, John 16, 33, I've told you these things so that in this world you will have peace, but take heart because I have overcome this world. Right? 2 Timothy 3, 12, in fact, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, not may be persecuted, not can be persecuted. Anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Matthew 5, 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 John 3, 13, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And I know it's easy to sit here in a building full of people that you know, come hell or high water, they're going to have your back and to nod in agreement that you know that this, that this ain't promised to be easy or comfortable. I know it's easy to do that in this room, but it's a different ball game when we walk out there and they're not around. It's a different story when the opposition is right in front of us. But I need you to know it's not by accident because we cannot forget that as we walk in faith, we are walking in the midst of a cosmic battle. There is a spiritual battle raging all around us that we don't even see. I mean, based on Daniel alone, at this very moment, as we are sitting under the word of God, there are angels and demons who are fighting right now for your attention, for your soul, for your mind in this very room. And we don't, we're not aware of them at all. There's a cosmic battle that we are walking into. I'll flesh out my demonology later for you if you have some questions about that. Paul, though, he says it like this. He's not shy in Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. We are fighting a spiritual battle right now. We will face hardship. We will face opposition. But the hardship and the opposition is not evidence that your faith is weak. 
In fact, the very opposite might be true. And the way we hold fast and persevere is by knowing what God has promised, clinging to what God has promised, praying for what God has promised, even when opposition is all around us. And make no mistake, one of his promises is not that your life will be easy. And we got to get away from this notion because I know it. I know what, what's being peddled right now from preachers and pulpits all around this country. I've heard them peddling this false idea that if you are struggling, it is somehow an indication that your faith is weak. And I want to tell you as your pastor, and if I'm not your pastor, then as a friend, that is garbage. You facing hardship in your life does not necessitate your faith being weak. Now, be careful. It might be because your faith is weak. You might be suffering because you're making stupid choices as a result of a weak faith. But when we are confident that we are walking in faith in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and the hardship and the persecution and the trial comes, it is not an evidence that you've erred. It's evidence that you're doing something right. Even though Nehemiah knows the opposition is waiting, he perseveres into it. Why? Here's the foundation. Because Nehemiah knows the promise. And he knows that ease and comfort that will come from compromising is less than the promise God has given. Here's the final truth I want you to see this morning. A faith in process praises. So a faith in process prays, it plans, it perseveres, and it praises. Can we just acknowledge the alliteration game is on point this morning? (laughs) All right. Pick up with me there in verse 17. So he's just finished surveying the state of Jerusalem. Just got done walking around. We read this. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, Let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Now watch this. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And then they said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this work. Verse 1920, Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, Jeshem the Arab heard about this. They mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We are his servants. We will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. So after Nehemiah finishes surveying the damage and the work that needs to be done, He gathers the officials and calls them to work. But pay attention to verse 18. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me. What's so amazing is that even in this call to build, as he is now inviting the priests, the people, the leaders to join in, he does so by praising God. Because that's where he gives the credit. The gracious hand of my God had been on me. Like This is not Nehemiah saying, yo, look how great I am. I was scared. I went into the presence of the king. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I came through. And on top of that, I got some stuff we didn't even need. Because you notice that when he sent, even though Nehemiah never asked for it, it was earlier in the chapter, the king gave him some, some infantrymen to be protection as he traveled. Nehemiah's like, I'm just that good. 
I don't even have to ask for stuff. No, that's not what Nehemiah does. At every step of the way, he says, hey, look how great God has been. At every step, he gives glory to God. He prayed to God when in the presence of the king. And when the king agrees, he doesn't take the credit like he swayed the king or his plan was impressive. No, verse 8, the king granted my request for the gracious hand of my God was on me. As he surveyed the wall, he acknowledged that God has laid this burden for Israel on my heart. It's God who's reminding Nehemiah of his promises. At the end of the chapter, Nehemiah faces opposition again as he is mocked and despised. And what does he say in verse 20? That the God of the heavens is the one who will grant success. Nehemiah is not saying, all right, let's see who's better, you or me. He's saying, no, I'm not going to engage in that because the God of the heavens will give us success. Why? He promised. He's not threatened by you. Every step of the way, Nehemiah gives credit where credit is due. And so please hear me. Nothing, nothing will halt your walk of faith faster than trying to take credit for what God is doing. And it is easy to fall into that trap. How easy it would have been for Nehemiah to say, yeah, we're going to rebuild the city because I convinced the king to let us do it. I got the timber. I got the workers. I got the protection. I secured it all. I've got this. But that's not Nehemiah. He understands that anything good that is going to happen to Israel is because God is faithful and that God has always been faithful. And so when the time comes to give credit, Nehemiah takes none for himself because the glory belongs to God and God alone. And I don't want to burst your bubble this morning. Maybe I do. (laughs) But please know that anything good you have in your life right now is not because you are great. It's because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Every good and perfect gift. See that job you got? It ain't because you're good. It's because God is good. That vacation you took this summer? No, that's because God is good. The food you ate this morning? Oh, that's because God is good. That nice head of hair you still got? Oh, that's because God is good. He's that good. That money in your bank account, however big or small, it's because God is good. The breath in your lungs is because God is good. The fact that you are here this morning and not dead on the side of the road in a car accident is because God is good. But maybe those things didn't do it for you. You sitting here like, my hair's not that great. My bank account's not that full. My job ain't great. And I didn't get to go on vacation. That's fine. I'll do you one better. The salvation you have this morning is because God is good. And I know it's true because I know my story. There wasn't anything in me that merited God to look on me with favor. As the Bible says, we are all dead in our sin. We all deserve death, hell, and the grave. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What I'm trying to tell you is if you doubt the goodness of God, go back to the gospel. Because in the midst of our sin, God didn't give up on us, even though that's what we deserved. I mean, we can't forget that if God would have ended it there and sent us all to hell, we would have gotten exactly what we deserved. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to live the life that you and I should have lived, but we couldn't. To die a death that you and I deserved to die. He took our place on that cross. As I like to say, and many before me, they hung him high and they stretched him wide. And he died on that cross, and they put him in a tomb. But church, three days later, 
He got up with victory and power and salvation in his hand. And he invites anyone to come to him in faith and repentance and find the satisfaction that your soul is longing for. What I'm trying to get you to see, we praise because he is worthy of praise. So let me end with this. If we're going to be a people who walk by faith, if we're going to be a people who understand that our faith is a process, it's a faith that depends on God in prayer. It's a faith that plans based on the promises of God. It's a faith that perseveres when the hard moments come because it believes that God has it better. And it's a faith that praises our God who is worthy and who has saved our souls. He is a good God, and he is worthy of our praise. And I want to tell you this morning, whether you are on the mountaintop or in the valley low, that a faith placed in him is never wasted. So let's walk by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this reminder this morning that our faith Though it was gifted to us in a moment, it wasn't the end of the journey. And our faith is a process. And God, I pray that we would be people who are, who are moving forward. That our faith is moving forward. Because we are walking by faith and not by sight. Lord, Lord help us to be a people that prays believing that you are faithful to deliver. Help us to be a people that plans because we are confident you'll never let us down. Help us to be a people that perseveres because we understand that the ease that comes from compromise is so much less than the promise you have given us. And let us be a people who never cease to praise your matchless name because you have done great things and you will continue to do them. So we give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.